evening or this morning from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians is probably the main epistle that Paul writes addressing the topic of the church of Jesus Christ, and particularly that church as it exists in the New Testament era when Jew and Gentile are together in that church, and the foundation of that church of Jew and Gentile is established in this chapter in the forgiveness of sins in the blood of Christ, who is the chief cornerstone of that church. Well, let's read, beginning at verse 1, Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh, and the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, who was rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved." And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father." Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, 
in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Thus far we read Holy Scripture this morning in light of that reading and others. Let's consider the instruction of Lord's Day 21 in its final question and answer. Question and answer 56 of Lord's Day 21. Continuing our exposition of the Apostles' Creed, question 56 asks the question, What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins? Answer, that God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins that we confess in the Apostles' Creed is the foundation for every Christian's personal life with God. You know the words of the well-known hymn that make this very clear. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Christ's blood is the satisfaction for the sake of which God will no more remember my sins. Christ's righteous life is the basis upon which God will graciously impute righteousness to me so that I am an heir of life eternal. Christ's headship is the legal covering that makes me know that I will never be condemned before the tribunal of God. And I say these are true of me, and you say those are true of you by faith. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. No good works I do are good enough to cancel out God's memory of the evil works that I have done. No activity of mine, even if it was righteous activity, could ever merit or earn anything with God. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins is the foundation for every Christian's personal life with God. But the forgiveness of sins is not only the foundation for the Christian's personal life, with God, the forgiveness of sins is also the foundation for the one holy Catholic Church of Jesus Christ and her life with God. This section of the Apostles' Creed we are treating may seem like a grab bag of miscellaneous topics. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in Holy Catholic Church. I believe the communion of saints. I believe the forgiveness of sins. What is the relationship between these articles, but it's not a grab bag. The arrangement is actually quite deliberate. Last time we found there is a connection between the one holy Catholic Church of Jesus Christ and the communion of saints, which is the relationship between the anatomy of the church and its physiology or its life. This time we will find that there is a connection between that one holy Catholic church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. If the church is a building fitly framed together, as Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, 
its foundation is in Christ, which is to say its foundation is in the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ. Our confession in this article is therefore highly significant. And it's not only highly significant for you and me as individuals, but it's highly significant for us as the church of Jesus Christ. You, me, and the whole church stands or falls on this article. I believe the forgiveness of sins. So I call our attention to question and answer 56, and the theme for the sermon is Believing the church's one foundation. First, we will identify this foundation as the foundation of the church's freedom before God. Freedom from debt and the bondage of debt. Secondly, that this foundation is the foundation for our life together in the church since Christ's sacrifice slew the enmity between Jew and Gentile. And then finally, that this foundation of the forgiveness of sins is the foundation for the church's growth. And it is what enables the church's growth. And it is the only thing that enables the church's growth. Believing the church is one foundation for freedom, for life together, for growth. I think we tend to forget that the church in the Old Testament was under bondage. Now, when you think about bondage in the Old Testament, you might think about some specific historical episodes, but that's not what I mean when I speak of the church in the Old Testament being under bondage. It's true, the Israelites were in bondage to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. It's true that various tribes were in bondage to the Canaanite nations during the days of the judges. It's true that the Jews were in bondage as they were carried off to exile in the land of Babylon. And that all belonged to the bondage of the church in the Old Testament. But really, those historical episodes were symptoms. Symptoms that pointed to a deeper bondage. A bondage that was at a more fundamental level in the church's existence in the Old Testament. What I'm referring to here is the bondage to the law. Paul brings this up in Ephesians 2 in verse 11 when he describes the Old Testament church as that which is called the circumcision in the flesh. Circumcision was an important aspect of life in the Old Testament church. Circumcision was a sign which marked one out visibly as a member of God's covenant nation, as a member of Israel. Circumcision was a sign and a seal that pointed ahead to the coming of Christ and His redemptive work. Circumcision said that there is a seed coming, the seed of Abraham, who will pay off the debt of God's people. But because circumcision said that there is a seed coming who will pay off the debt of God's people, circumcision also made clear there is a debt that must be paid. And that until that debt is paid, we are in bondage. That's why to be circumcised was, as Galatians 5 verse 3 puts it, to become 
a debtor, a debtor to do the whole law. The law we're talking about here is the law that Moses received from God on Mount Sinai. Now that law includes the Ten Commandments that we just had read this morning. But that law also included the civil and ceremonial laws that regulated life in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament administration. To be circumcised was to become a debtor who owed obedience to those Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws, which means to be circumcised was to become a debtor who owed obedience to the law that said you may not eat pork. And to be circumcised was to become a debtor who owed obedience to the law that said blasphemers must be punished by being stoned to death by the whole congregation. To be circumcised was to become a debtor who owed obedience to the law that said you must go to the Passover feast when it is celebrated in Jerusalem and the other pilgrimage feasts. To be circumcised was to become a debtor who owed obedience to all the laws of sacrifice and worship and ceremonial cleansing that you find in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. To be circumcised was to become a debtor who owed scrupulous obedience to all of the laws that were written in the Torah, that is, in the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Not to pay up the obedience that was owed was to be placed under the curse. To understand what that meant, you ought to read some time from Deuteronomy chapter 28, which describes the curse of God that will be on the nation that fails to pay that which was owed, namely obedience to the law. God says the nation will fall under the curse. And what does that mean? In verse 16 of Deuteronomy 28, God says, that this is what will happen to the nation. Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall be thy basket and thy store. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land, the increase of thy kine or cows and the flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Verse 25 The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. And that's part of the curse. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 36, The Lord shall bring thee and thy king which thou shalt set over thee unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known. And there shalt thou serve other gods, wood and stone. And thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations whither the Lord shall lead thee. Your land will be put to the sword. Your city will be destroyed. You will be carried off in chains in exile. Cursed shalt thou be. And what made this so troubling is that God will send these judgments seeking payment, restitution, Satisfaction must be made. The debt must be paid. The debt that your circumcision says is owed by you. And because the nation was all bound together, if any individual fails to pay that debt, the whole nation is liable to that curse. Which is why such an individual who fails to pay the debt must be isolated 
and stoned by the whole congregation and his body or her body hanged on a tree. Or as Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 says, he that is hanged is accursed of God. And the purpose of this was that the whole land be not defiled. The church in the Old Testament was under bondage. There was always a cloud of judgment hanging over the church in those days. As far as the Gentiles were concerned, the situation was far worse. As Paul says in verse 12 of Ephesians 2, the Gentiles at that time were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not the Jews who were under bondage to the ceremonial laws of Moses. They were the Philistines. The Philistines who were put to the sword by the judges and by King David and the other kings. They were the Midianites, the Amalekites, who were a constant thorn in the side of God's people and who were under God's judgment. They were the Assyrians whose army of 185,000 was slain in one night by the angel of the Lord. They were the Egyptians whose firstborn sons were killed by the angel of death because they were not covered in the blood of the Lamb. The Gentiles also were strangers from the covenants of promise, Paul says in verse 12. You see, though circumcision put God's people in debt, it also carried the promise of redemption. It said, Christ is coming. He's coming. And when He comes, He will pay the debt of God's people in full. He will take their curse on Himself. But the Gentiles were strangers to such a promise. Strangers to God's friendship. Strangers to the covenant. They were the uncircumcision without the promise of redemption. Without hope. Without God in the world. And by nature, that's us, isn't it? It doesn't matter which tribe we come from in terms of the nations of the earth. Dutch. Irish. Liberian. Chinese. American, the same as Egyptian, Assyrian, Philistine, Gentiles, uncircumcision, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, far from God in the world, and yet owing a massive debt in our own right in our first father Adam, and therefore rightly under the judgment of the Creator. And it's not just in our father Adam that we owe that debt, but it's a debt that each of us personally has contributed to every day with our actual sins in thought, word, and deed. Sins that are really worse than violations of the ceremonial law because the sins we commit are sins against the law that is written in our conscience. The law that is known 
in nature itself. Sins that put us in the position of a Pharaoh or a Goliath. At the end of the sword, David's sword, unless something changes and God shows us mercy. Bondage. That's the condition of the human race. Bondage in debt. Hopefully by this point, we can see what Jesus' death meant for the Old Testament church. What it meant was the payment of all that debt that they owed. It was a very significant moment when the eight-day-old Jesus was taken into the temple and circumcised. That circumcision of Jesus was not just a repetition of a ritual that had been applied to thousands of baby boys before and now it's applied to one more baby boy. No, Jesus was the Messiah who came down from God, who was born under the law, according to the Galatians 4, to redeem those who are under the law. And this was shown and made visible when he was circumcised and thus made a debtor to do the whole law. Since Jesus had no personal debts to pay, he never sinned himself and was not guilty in Adam, his circumcision was acceptance of the responsibility to pay the debts of his people. All the debt accumulated by God's people was imputed to him, and that was shown by Jesus' circumcision, and it was made his responsibility to pay. He became a debtor. To do the law. (coughs) And with that responsibility laid on him, he was hanged on a tree. And he died the accursed death. And in that way, according to verse 15, he abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He made a satisfaction for the sins of the people, which was the debt that they owed. He took their curse on Himself. But Jesus' death did not only mean the payment of the debt of disobedience and curse, Jesus' death also meant the fulfilling of all righteousness. For Jesus not only bore in His body the curse of God against the sins of his people, but he also lived his whole life in obedience to the law, in perfect obedience to the law, as the perfect head of the covenant. He owed obedience to the law in behalf of the whole covenant nation whom he represented, and he executed that obedience in full. And because he did that as the representative of his people, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to all of them by God so that it becomes their righteousness. Just as the righteous rule of David benefited the whole kingdom of Israel, so the righteousness of Christ benefits all who are united to Him so that it becomes their righteousness. So much so that God looks at His people as if the works of Jesus Christ are their own works. Do you get that? God looks at you 
who believe in his Son as if the works of his Son are your works and he accounts them to you. The curse of the law is taken away. The debt of obedience is paid in full. That's what makes the forgiveness of sins a reality in the church. And at this point, we can begin to see how this work of Christ impacted not only the Old Testament church, the circumcision, who were visibly put in bondage to the law through their circumcision, but we can see how this also impacts the Gentiles. Jesus' payment of all that was owed to the law didn't just cancel the debt, but as Paul says, it abolished the law altogether. That is, it abolished everything represented by the circumcision in the flesh. Now, it abolished it not by destroying it. It abolished it not by undoing it or deconstructing it. It abolished it by fulfilling it. It abolished it by rendering it null and void. There is no point in circumcision anymore if the promised seed of Abraham has come and paid the debt. There is no point in placing people under bondage to the law by having them be circumcised and having them obey all of these laws if that debt has been paid. Imagine if you just wrote the last check to pay off your mortgage to your house that you've been working on for years and years and years and you just paid the last bill. And the next month, another bill shows up asking for more money. And the reason this bill shows up is not because you're legally obliged to pay more, but the bank just says, we figured you liked this rhythm of paying these bills every month and we thought maybe you'd want to keep paying money to us. I bet I know what you would do with a bill like that. I know what I'd do with it. It's null and void. There is no debt. These rhythms are not necessary anymore. This payment is superfluous. Jesus abolished that Old Testament law by fulfilling it, by rendering it null and void. And by abolishing the law, Jesus also abolished everything that kept the Gentiles now far off. He abolished the circumcision of the flesh. He abolished the outward administration of the commonwealth of Israel. He abolished everything that made the Gentiles as Gentiles to be without hope and without God in the world. There is no more mortgage to be paid. The house is paid off. The doors are open also to the Gentiles. And now preachers like Paul can go out proclaiming redemption and forgiveness in Christ without the works of the law, without circumcision, without the need to become debtors to a law that no longer has any power. And now believing Gentiles can say along with believing Jews that God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ. 
that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Now believing Gentiles can say along with believing Jews, I believe the forgiveness of sins. I fear, beloved, that we tend to take this for granted. And I say that of myself. I fear I tend to take this for granted. I think we can say that of ourselves. We never had to sit on the outside looking in as Gentiles who attended the synagogues in Paul's day did. We never had to visibly assume debt to the law through circumcision or have circumcision laid out in front of us as something that must happen or you're excluded. But for the church in Ephesus, both Jew and Gentile, what Paul is teaching here and preached in the churches was freedom. It was freedom. Freedom from the fear and shame of being alienated from the God of Abraham. Freedom from the hopelessness of having this wall between you and God that cannot be broken down and you cannot find a way around it. Freedom. Freedom with a foundation. Freedom with a legal basis in the righteousness of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. And that freedom opened the way for a blessing that had long been promised long been prophesied in the Old Testament, but wasn't really seen, not in its fullness, until this point in the history of the church. The point in which Paul was carrying out his ministry, which was Jew and Gentile living together in the church on one shared foundation in the forgiveness of sins. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon this morning. That middle wall of partition that Paul speaks of in verse 14 was a very serious divide. It was an entrenched divide. He says that Christ is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. That middle wall of partition was very well understood by the Jews and Gentiles who were in the church of Ephesus. The force of that middle wall of partition was felt in very visible and tangible ways. In the temple in Jerusalem, the temple that Jesus went to, there was a literal wall set up that kept uncircumcised Gentiles out of the temple precinct. Gentile visitors to the temple were permitted to go only so far into the temple grounds. They were not permitted to enter the inner court, but they had to remain outside in what was called the court of the Gentiles. And dividing the court of the Gentiles from the court of Israel was a visible barrier that had a warning posted to it. And the warning said that any uncircumcised Gentiles who passed this barrier were liable to the death penalty. Why? For defiling God's house with their presence. 
Now that tangible, invisible divider was not only there in the temple, but it could be felt anywhere you went at this time. In every city where Jews had settled, they lived in visible separation from everybody else. They lived in their own communities. They went to their synagogue on the Sabbath day. They followed their dietary laws. They looked different and dressed different. They acted different. They spoke a different language often. They worshipped a different God. And this made the Jews stand out, especially in a society like the one of that day where religions and cultures were all mixed through one another. This strict separation also caught the attention of some Gentiles who were actually attracted by it and who wanted to know more about this God that the Jews worshipped and who wanted to know more about this life that the Jews lived. We read of such Gentiles in the Bible, such as Cornelius, the centurion, and his family. That's the man that Peter visited that's described in Acts 10. And that man is described as a God-fearer, that is, a Gentile, uncircumcised, but who was attracted to the God of the Jews. Also, as Paul went around preaching in the synagogues on his missionary journeys, there were often Gentiles there in attendance as well. But these Gentiles were were in attendance as spectators, They were in attendance as outsiders looking in, not as participants. The Jews were the circumcised. The Gentiles were the uncircumcised. There was a firmly entrenched, visible and tangible divide between the two. And what we have to understand, and I think it's a little bit difficult for us to understand this, living in the time and place that we do, but what we have to understand is that This separation was not wrong. This separation was proper. Jesus himself acknowledged the separation that existed between the Jew and the Gentile in the Old Testament. He once told a woman of Phoenicia, a Gentile woman, who asked him to heal her daughter that it is not fitting to take meat from the children, that would be the Jews, and to give it unto the dogs, which would include her and her daughter. The Jews are the children. The Gentiles are the dogs. Jesus said that. There was a very real middle wall of partition set up between the Jew and the Gentile. And it was not set up as such by racial prejudice. It was not set up as such on account of cultural bigotry. It was set up by God's own decree. But think of what message this sent to the Gentiles. What this message would have sent to you and me had we been there at the time. The message was this. You are without Christ. You are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You are strangers from the covenants of promise. You have no hope. You are without God in the world. Salvation is not of the Gentiles. Salvation is of the Jews. Which is also what Jesus said in John 4 verse 22. There was a real, visible, tangible divide. And the effect of all of this was enmity. 
between Jew and Gentile. On the one hand, there was enmity which the Gentiles nurtured against the Jews. Those Jews think they're so good because they're the children of Abraham. They think they're better than us. They follow all those strange laws. They probably do it just to rub it in our faces that they are more righteous than we. There's an undercurrent of this kind of resentment, and you can pick up on it in the pages of Scripture, especially in the book of Acts. That undercurrent of animosity that the Gentiles harbored against the Jews is why the deputy, the Roman deputy Gallio, a Gentile, didn't blink an eye when the Greeks took the Jewish leader of the synagogue and beat him. You can read of that in Acts 18, verse 17. That animosity that the Gentiles harbored against the Jews is why those who accused Paul and Silas in Philippi emphasized that these men were troubling the city as Jews. Acts 16, verse 20. That animosity the Gentiles harbored against the Jews is why soon after Paul wrote the words that we read here in Ephesians, the Romans would go on to dismantle the temple brick by brick after ruthlessly putting down a Jewish rebellion in which they almost annihilated the whole nation. In 70 AD, there was real resentment and enmity that the Gentiles harbored against the Jews. There was an equally intense hatred that the Jews harbored against the Gentiles. Truth be told, the Jews did think they were better. Truth be told, the Jews did think they were more righteous because they had the law. They were called the circumcision. They were the ones who were on the side of Abraham and Moses and David and had revelation from the true God. The intensity of the Jewish hatred for the Gentiles was seen on an occasion when Paul went back to the city of Jerusalem. He had a Gentile Christian along with him from Ephesus whose name was Trophimus. Now, Paul did not bring this Gentile Trophimus past the court of the Gentiles into the temple, but some people assumed he did, and they accused him of doing this. And then they cried out to the crowds that this man Paul has brought Greeks into the temple and has polluted this holy place. Acts 21, verse 28. And this caused such an uproar that Paul was literally forcibly dragged out of the temple and would have been beaten to death in the streets and the only thing that saved him was a band of Roman soldiers who came out and forcibly broke up the riot. Now that's the environment in which Paul is carrying out his ministry. It's an environment of what today they call polarization. But it's enmity, really. It's enmity. But this middle wall of partition, Paul says, has been broken down by the blood of Christ. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace who hath made both one, Jew and Gentile, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which who were afar off, and to them which were nigh. 
And through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. It was an amazing thing that was happening in the church of Ephesus, beloved. On the one hand, everything that was at the heart of the Old Testament law was still being upheld there. The law was not cast aside. The law was fulfilled in Christ and recognized as having been fulfilled in Christ. The curse of the law has been satisfied by His substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. The debt of obedience owed to the law has been paid by His perfectly righteous life. The law has been fulfilled. On the other hand, Jew and Gentile are now sitting side by side in the assembly, worshiping God. Circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles sharing one faith. Circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles belonging to one body, partaking of one spirit, called with one calling, worshiping one Lord, children of one Father who is above all and through all and in you all, as Paul will describe it in the next chapter. Circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles sharing life together in the communion of saints. Circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles forming each of them the building blocks that will be built up as the house of God and are being built up as the house of God. That old temple with its middle wall of partition can safely be torn down by the Romans. It's not going to make any difference because now the true house of God is being built in the lives of Jews and Gentiles in the church of Christ. Now how is that possible? There's only one way that's possible. And it's through the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is the only foundation that can support such a drastic change in the the church's life. By abolishing the law and obtaining forgiveness for all His people, Christ abolished the source of contention that existed between Jew and Gentile. He humbled both, convicting both Jew and Gentile as sinners before God, as debtors before God. And he reconciled them unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. He laid a foundation for life together for those who otherwise would be forever polarized and at odds with one another. That's impossible apart from the forgiveness of sins, beloved. Forgiveness of sins is... The church is one foundation. Knowing that that's true ought to make certain developments in our own times alarming to us. I'm referring to the social justice movement. The social justice movement may seem like a good thing to many Christians today. It uses good words like justice and truth. It promises to stand up for those who are vulnerable and marginalized and forgotten. It promises to hold in check those who abuse and misuse power. And because many of these same concerns are shared by Christians who believe the Bible, social justice may seem like a no-brainer. To many, social justice means loving my neighbor and being concerned to stand up for the weak. 
and we have no problem with that, of course. But it's very important to understand the roots of the social justice movement. What the social justice movement is doing is putting into practice a set of ideas called critical social theory, or that's one of the many names that can be given to this set of ideas. And the purpose of critical social theory is not merely to show love to my weaker neighbor, which would be a Christian concern, but the purpose of critical social theory is to change society by instigating divisions and entrenching divisions. Critical social theory divides society into basically two classes with many subsets. There are the oppressors and then there are the oppressed. Now, oppressor versus oppressed may fall out along the lines of race or along the lines of gender or along the lines of sexuality or along some other lines or along some combination of multiple of these lines. But the main difference between oppressor and oppressed is one has power and the other doesn't. Or one has more power and the other has less. Those who have more power, the oppressors are bad. Those who have less power, the oppressed, are good. Social justice then takes this analysis of critical social theory and seeks to stir up the oppressed class through activism. And the goal is to change the status quo by redistributing power. Now that may sound like a bunch of technical and academic jargon. In a certain sense, it is which is why it's so hard to get a hold of this reality. But Christians need to know, we need to know, that these ideas are at the bottom of a lot of what's going on in the world today. Critical social theory explains why white people now are considered racist by default. Not by any thoughts they actually have or feelings they actually have, but by default because of who they are. Critical social theory explains how women's ordination went from being a nearly universally recognized as unbiblical issue to an issue that can embarrass even conservative Christians who feel like they have to explain this away. Critical social theory is what made the LGBT movement mainstream in our society and in many churches in our society. Critical social theory is the lens that the world is looking through right now. Critical social theory is the lens many churches and many Christians are looking through right now. Critical social theory is in the air. Its language maybe isn't, but the ideas very much are. But critical social theory is not Christian. And the main thing that makes it anti-Christian is that it denies the main article upon which the church either stands or falls. There is no forgiveness of sins in critical social theory. If you are an oppressor, you will never be anything but an oppressor according to these ideas. If you are an oppressor, you owe a debt that you cannot pay back. Critical social theory builds up the middle wall of partition and entrenches it in the church and in society. It says there is no peace and there can be no peace between those who belong to separate classes. We need to keep our ideas 
Keep our eyes on these ideas, beloved. Recognize them for what they are and reject them. We need justice in the church. That's true. But not social justice. Not critical theory. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles. The apostles. Not social activists. The apostles who preach forgiveness of sins to Jew and Gentile. And only that foundation will serve the church's growth. The church grows when the church rests on the foundation of the forgiveness of sins. The church grows, beloved, when this is the message that is proclaimed from the church's pulpit, that every man, every human being owes a debt to God. It doesn't matter what class you belong to. It doesn't matter what you've experienced in life. It doesn't matter who you are. If you are a human, then by nature you are alienated from the righteous God and without hope in the world. And beloved, I don't say this lightly, but the truth is we deserve everything that we experience in life. All the pain, all the troubles, all the suffering, we deserve it. And worse, to pay the debt that we owe to God's justice. We, des- we deserve to die the accursed death. That's the truth. But God, who is rich in mercy, For his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together in Christ. By grace are ye saved. That's the message. The message isn't the Jews are righteous and the Gentiles are forever to be held at arm's length. The message isn't these people over here are righteous because they had bad experiences in life, and those people over there aren't righteous because they had good experiences in life. The message is, you're a sinner. You are. And I am. And God calls you to repentance. The message is, God promises to everyone who repents and comes to Him that their sins are forgiven in Christ. Come then. Come, all you who labor and are heavy laden with debt and bondage to the law and to sin. Come. Come, you who are without hope and without God in the world. And believe in the Son of God. That's the message. That's the message that was preached by the apostles and the prophets. That's the message that was ratified in the blood of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone of the church. And it is by faith in that message that the building of the church will be fitly framed together and will grow to an holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple in whom you also are built together for an holy habitation of God through the Spirit. You Gentiles also... Everyone who comes to Christ through repentance and faith. 
Beloved, there's a real danger. We lose sight of this. It seems too simple, doesn't it? The forgiveness of sins? That's all? Surely for the church to grow, we need more than this. Surely for the church to grow, we need to get with the times. Surely for the church to grow, we need to adapt to the spirit of our age. Surely for the church to grow, we need to do more good works. Good works in our community. We need to start more programs. We need to do this. We need to do that. And don't get me wrong. We do need to do some of those things. We do need to live out our Christian life. And God uses that. But there's only one foundation for the church. One foundation. And it's the same old message that the church has been proclaiming from the Apostles' Creed for ages and ages and ages. It's the only message that centralizes the work of Jesus Christ. It's the only message that brings redemption to sinners like you and like me. And that message is what we confess in the Apostles' Creed when we say these words, I believe the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for His perfect work, His substitutionary satisfaction for the debt that we owed, His perfect obedience of the law. And we thank Thee, O Father, that as we repent of sin and turn to Christ in faith, that Thou dost impute these things to us so that we may live in the confidence of salvation, that we are rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus, that Thou art a God who loves us and who has loved us from all eternity, which is why Thou dost lead us to Thy Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, O Father, that Thou wilt bless this church with growth as we cling to our confession, which is the church's one foundation, our confession of the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.